and welcome to the 35th episode of The Morning Rage. I'm your host, Jen Prentice. And I'm your co-host, Lauren O'Keefe. And this is not your mom's morning show. It's a space where we pop off about all things culture, society, and politics in order to help you unpack your beliefs, feel more confident in sharing your voice. And today, we talk with author and activist Ashley Abercrombie about learning to disagree and resolve conflict in a healthy way. Ashley was so much fun to talk to. Like, what a great conversation we got to have. And she's just one of those people that like immediately makes you feel like you're just a couple friends hanging out, having coffee, but like talking about the good stuff. We got in really deep with her and I can't wait to see her again someday. She doesn't live that far from us. No, next time we're headed down to Southern California, we should absolutely hit her up. Ashley, we're coming for you. <laughs> Keep an eye on your inbox. Both of us got an advanced copy of Ashley's book, which we really enjoyed reading. And our conversation with Ashley, I feel like sometimes when I listen to authors on podcasts, their conversations are just like a recap of what the book talks about. And it's like, okay, all I needed to do was listen to the podcast. And I'm not just saying this because this is our podcast, but <laughs> I really feel like this conversation with Ashley didn't just recap what her book is about, but really added to what she talked about in the book. Like it took on a life of its own. And we were talking about things like maintaining an attitude of curiosity in relationships, especially in conflict in relationships and how the church has lost control of the narrative whenever it comes to like disagreeing with people. Ugh, so many good things. So many good things. Yeah. I'm really excited for everyone to hear this interview. And I'm not even sure... We need to do a popping off or hot stuff. We should just get to it. You guys, you're going to love this interview with Ashley Abercrombie on how love is the resistance. Hey everyone, we are so excited to have Ashley Abercrombie here today. We have been listening to Ashley and her podcaster co-host Tiffany Bloom on their Why Though podcast for months and months and months and are huge fans. But in addition to being a fellow podcaster, Ashley is an author, speaker, a wife, a mom of three, and she is releasing a book called Love is the Resistance in August, which is just a few weeks from now. So she's here to talk about that book and why it is so relevant to this political, cultural, societal moment. Ashley, thank you so much for being here. It's my pleasure to be here. Thank you guys for having me. That was such a, a warm intro. And all she means is that I'm exhausted, you guys. Is anyone yeah. else out there just like so tired? Well, you do have a teething baby. So yes, Correct. you are very tired. <laughs> yes. Well, tell us a little bit more about yourself, just how you came to be and do all these things and be as tired as you are. <laughs> yes, totally. Okay. So I was born and raised in the Southeast of um, the United States in a little town in North Carolina, which I loved growing up there. You had, you know, just like neighbors and you can go hang out all the time and, you know, you can walk to each other's houses and it's fine. You know, it's safe and it's good. And I loved that. And there is also like an undertone in those small towns where, you know, everybody knows you, but nobody really knows you at all. Yes. Like, I do like, know that. 
okay. And so I feel like it was so easy for me to kind of hide and pretend and perform. So it's been quite a journey, you know, over the last 20 years of uncovering the mask and kind of being willing to lay my guard down and be open and honest about my thoughts and my feelings and where I'm at. But the more that I've done that, the more freedom I've stepped into and the more I think personal power I've been able to step in relationships have gotten more reciprocal and generous. And I'm really grateful for that. And my husband and I met in Los Angeles because I moved there when I was 21 years old and we met in LA. I lived there for 15 years and then spent a short stint of four years in Manhattan. And I love the energy of Manhattan. It's so fun. And like the energy is just amazing. And then at the end of it, I was like, I'm pretty sure this energy is making my adrenal glands fail. So we got to go now. <laughs> yeah. I, I can adjust to that. I lived yeah. there for a little over four years and I was like, Amazing. time to leave. Okay. Okay. So you know exactly what that energy can do to you yeah. when you're living it every day. And so we relocated back to California, actually one week before COVID hit last year. Gosh. And so we've been here, um, you know, since then, and we have added a daughter to our, to our two boys, which is great to have some girl energy. Cause she's way chill. And <laughs> I appreciate that. Cause my boys are way wild. I'm like, can you, if you jump from 10 feet, it's not good. You know, like, <laughs> let me get these ideas. Can someone write me a note and, and tell me where it comes from? What is wrong with their brain? <laughs> here, I have two boys as well. And they're just like so Absolutely different. Good than yeah. anything that I have a context for. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, well it is, said. it's a real, it's a real thing. It's a real thing. Well, what made you guys move back to California? Yeah. So Other we, than the adrenal gland. Totally. Yeah. That was a real huge part of it. You know, I've had to make decisions in my life. I'm 18 years sober this year. And so, you know, sober from, um, abusive alcohol, drugs, eating disorders, perfectionism, and dysfunctional relationships. And so I really have had to make tough decisions when it comes to margin, because one of the ways that I stay sober is to have some margin in my life. I need margin in my you know time. I need margin in my energy. I need margin in my resources, you know, whatever they are. And I, if I don't have that, I tend to be too tempted to go back um, to break that sobriety. So I think it definitely got to a point, you know, because we loved, we were part of a faith community out there and we loved it. We had a, a, an amazing group of friends. Like it was such a beautiful place, but at the same time, I realized that this lack of margin is killing me and I need to make a different decision. So, you know, and I told my husband like, Hey, I think my sobriety is in danger. I just had to be brave and honest and share that with him and share that with a couple of friends. And, you know, we started making different decisions to create more margin in our life. And I'm so grateful for that. And back here in California, we do have, you know, another community because we lived here for 15 years. So we had friends that are close that have known us who actually knew me when I wasn't sober. (laughs) So I feel like, you know, they just get it and they understand. And that's been very healthy and healing for me. And I'm glad because we went through a global pandemic and I don't think I would have made it, fam. Okay. (laughs) Oh my gosh. We said, we are so glad that we were in California where even though the restrictions were, you know, pretty heavy, we could still go outside and the weather was gorgeous and we had the beach and things like that. Right. You can go for a hike. You can go for a walk. Like it's so good for your mental health. I agree with you. (laughs) Yeah. And you know, one of the things that I love because I have, I've listened to the podcast. We've listened to the podcast for so long and we follow you on Instagram is you are so open about your sobriety. And I think that that is just a really beautiful thing. And I think it's encouraging to so many people. I know that you were on my friend, Jeanette Tapley's podcast. A couple yes, of weeks ago. She's so lovely. She's the loveliest. <laughs> yes. And, um, she congratulated you on your sobriety being an adult. And I thought, yes. and you posted that on Instagram. It was so sweet. So congratulations. 
Thank you so much. It feels like such a massive accomplishment and I'm so grateful. And I think that's the thing that people don't always know about recovering people is that it's such a process, you know, and that people in recovery have to take you know, have to really mind their margin and mind their mental health and emotional health. And, you know, I think that sometimes we can also group recovery people as like those people. <laughs> but the truth is, I think we're kind of all like that. <laughs> and sobriety gave me a really good opportunity to really examine, do I like the life I'm living? Do I like the person I'm becoming? And, you know, if not, what will I do to change those things? You know, yeah. if I don't like who I'm becoming, how can I, you know, get my life and my days? Cause it's the ordinary days that make up a life. I'm sure somebody really smart said that, not me. Cause I feel like I've seen it on Pinterest, but it's true. <laughs> it's those ordinary days strung together that create the life we want to live. And I don't want to have a life that I need to run away from mm. or a life that I feel like if I don't have a two week vacation every quarter, I can't make it, you know? And I just, I want to enjoy the ordinary days. And I think that life is that's a, that's a process, you know, to enjoy your life that way. <laughs> it's a lot of discipline and those margins you're talking yeah. about. I'm like, preach. I'm like, yeah. yes. I'm like, hold on. Can I, can we pause? I need to go journal. <laughs> I have mine right here. We can just write it down. I'm like, this is what I've been needing is this idea of margins. And like, yeah. so thank you for that. Honestly, you're so welcome. We all need it. We're just human beings, right? Like we can't wait. This world will put so much on you so much hurry and so much anxiety and so much stress. And we do have to figure out like, how can I, how can I manage that? <laughs> yeah. Well, and one of those things is this book that, mm -hmm. that you're coming out with. And I think obviously so timely, what kind of sparked this in mm -hmm. you that made you think, Hey, now's the time. And this is what I want to talk about. Yes. So when I wrote my first book, I finished it. And the very end of that book are several chapters about relationships and just living and, you know, different things like that. And I thought, huh. And then the phrase love is the resistance kept coming to mind. And I've been part of justice spaces for about 15 years now. So working with anti-human trafficking movements, I served as a prison chaplain, you know, just different things over the course of the last 15 years that make me passionate about people. And I think because of that, that I love things like, you know, hashtag resist and, you know, all these different things that were kind of happening, all these beautiful global movements we've seen over the last, you know, six, seven years around race and gender equality and all those types of things. And then I thought to myself, huh, but whenever I do that, I really am kind of cutting off a whole chunk of people. You know, I am not speaking to the people that I want to talk to and I want to be with my people, but at the same time, I don't want to be in an echo chamber. So I think I really started thinking thoughtfully about what that is. And little did I know we were about to enter a very, another very volatile election season. And, you know, I'm watching families fight on Facebook and you know, aunties sending text messages to their, you know, kids and everybody's upset about who's voting for who and what issues matter the most. And, you know, are we Black Lives Matter, anti-Black Lives Matter? Are we pro-life or pro-choice? And I just kept watching people fight. And, you know, I just was like, what is happening? You know, why are we allowing pundits and politicians and internet preachers to inform our way of thinking? And isn't there a higher and better way? And so for me, Love is the Resistance was born out of that deep desire to help people deal with conflict and help people better understand why we do what we do. Because when you become self-aware about where you've come from, and then you can offer a bit more generosity about where other people have come from. And you can allow a healthy level of differentiation to say, your opinion is different than mine, but I'm not going to take that personally. <laughs> you know, I'm not going to cut you off 
for the rest of our lives because you just don't, you know, think the way I think. And again, there are times that you have to end relationships because they're toxic or unsafe. So there's room for that. But I think the vast majority of our issues really stem from our lack of ability to communicate. (laughs) Oh yeah. And I love that you said, you know, first you have to have that self-awareness about Mm -hmm. yourself and where you come from. And, you know, we talked earlier about how you're from the Southeast, Eden, North Carolina, and I lived in the South for eight years. And I think there is a different culture over there. Um, especially in the smaller towns and to understand and to embrace where you came from and who you are and the people that you love and their attitudes, Mm -hmm. but to also realize and have a curiosity about why they feel that way. And you say that in the book, one of the things that you say is that we have to maintain an attitude of curiosity in the midst of disagreements or conflicts. So can you talk a little bit more about that? Like, what does that mean? How do we maintain that attitude of curiosity while still knowing who we are and where we stand on things? Yes. Okay. So powerful. So I think that curiosity really helps us do two things. One, it helps, it, it, it provides an invitation to others to share why they believe what they believe or how they arrived at their conclusions. And that in and of itself takes something that could be very volatile down to just level ground. So if somebody says, you know, a political belief that you don't agree with, a religious belief that you don't agree with, then, you know, one of the first questions I like to ask is, you know, how did you arrive at that conclusion? You know, how did you get there? Why does this feel so important to you? You know, um, were you brought up to really value this issue? Is that something that was part of your family of origin or did you develop this passion later? So I think asking questions like that are really powerful because people get to hear themselves talk instead of getting into a disagreement with another person about the issue. They're actually thoughtfully reflecting about why they believe what they believe. And so that attitude of curiosity is so helpful. It also works on a very practical level in your marriage, in your friendships. You know, when you've had a fight about why, I don't know, somebody doesn't unload the dishwasher you know, when they're supposed to just, you know, it's always the silly things with your friends or a a partner. And you have to ask those questions like, Hey, let me, let me learn more about why this keeps happening. You know, do you feel stressed when you wake up? Is it, you know, does this feel hard for you? Can I take over this or that? Like you can ask questions instead of escalating to this place where you're fighting and telling people why they're bad and why they're wrong and why you're better and why you're right. (laughs) And And online, you can do this too. Like, I think there are times online where I, I for sure have gone too far one way or the other. And I for sure have done it well as well, where I could ask a question to somebody like, Hey, this is a really interesting belief. You know, how did you get here? Can you tell us, you know, and just try to watch somebody explain that in the comments, you know, <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> but we need that level of healthy discourse and curiosity is a really good goal. Then again, you don't take it so personal. I get very frustrated when people, you know, get very, very um, offended by people's beliefs. I'm like, why they're not even like you ended and they began like what there, there needs to be a better boundary there. <laughs> yeah. yeah, That's You're so true. So right. And I think, you know, you just gave us a bunch of questions to ask mm-hmm. in order to maintain that posture of curiosity. And one of the things that I love about the book is that at the end of every single chapter, you give us questions to ask. You give us an affirmation. And then there's one other thing and I'm forgetting there's three things you it's your book. What are the three? Totally. There's four. So it's, um, it's a, it's an attitude, an affirmation, and then a technique 
and a reflective question. So it'll be a technique that would either help you personally, or it's a technique that could help you communicate better. So I really wanted, I want people to internalize this idea of love, but I also want to equip you know, you to do it. Like I think sometimes love is so ethereal sometimes and it's idealistic and we need to break love down to this very practical thing that people can actually do. And I, I really wanted us to have some techniques for communication and connection. <laughs> yeah. And I love that idea of attitude. I think yeah. if we can embody that, like mentally, it's just a shift. It's a per- perspective mm-hmm. shift of, you yes, let me take on an attitude of curiosity or whatever it might be that you need in that moment. Let me pull from my toolbox and how much different a conversation goes when we take on a different attitude, attitude of humility, whatever it might be. So I love that. I love that that's the first place you start and it does make it very practical um, to take this idea that can, you know, really rile some people up and totally bring it into like, Hey, let's look at what we can actually do moving forward. I mean, it is really uncomfortable to get into disagreements with people. I like to shy away from that. Not, I don't love it. I don't love the conflicts. (laughs) Tell us why it's important that we engage in disagreements with people, because I think that is the problem Mm -hmm. with this last year or social media or whatever. People are like, this is too hard. I'm getting too mad. I'm just going to shut down and I'm not going to talk to those people anymore. And that's how we get echo chambers. Right. So why is it so important that we, you know, go into it with a great attitude, but also yeah. engage in the disagreement? Yes, that's a great question. So I think part of it is we have to begin to view conflict as a means for connection. Mm-hmm. And this feels hard because most of us don't grow up with a healthy, um, you know, example of conflict. You know, we don't grow up watching people fight well. And so because of that, we do a couple of things. We sweep things under the rug and don't want to talk about them at all, or we run away from conflicts, or we're on the other end of the spectrum where we might fight all the time, even if it's just uh, bickering. And then sometimes that could escalate into something that's a little bit more volatile and and rage is, you know, the thing that comes out. And all of those responses to disagreement are a form of avoidance of intimacy and connection. So I think if you can begin to think about disagreement differently, where it is an opportunity for me to push through and have a difficult conversation that I feel uncomfortable, they might feel uncomfortable. And then I'm able to actually experience greater relationship, greater intimacy, greater connection on the back end of that, then that's my goal. And so I can push through this uncomfortable space with another person because I actually do want to be closer. And so instead we, you know, avoid that. And then therefore we avoid closeness and we feel isolated in relationships. And we feel like we can't ever share anything that's really going on with us. And I really don't want people to have to deal with that. You know, one of the practices that my husband and I have is that we, you know, we'll say on the front end, we'll just call the elephant in the room. You know, we'll just say, Hey, this feels so uncomfortable. I don't actually even know how to have this conversation, but I know that I love you and I want to, because it's important for us to be close and we need to talk about this. Mm. So we'll just name it instead of trying to pretend like it's going to go awesome, you know, and pretend like it's not going to be messy (laughs) or to have that be the expectation, right? Like part of the reason humans are so unhappy is because we are perpetually disappointed by our expectations. So if you know, you know, that conflict is supposed to be messy and then it's going to probably take a couple of conversations, then that's your expectation. Instead of being like, I should say all the right things. They should respond to me all the right ways. And this should just feel really beautiful or I'm not going to do it. You know, it's like, well, those are, that's a little extreme. Let's just uh, find a middle. (laughs) 
<laughs> what would you say is the most valuable skill to learn in order to engage in that healthy conflict? Well, I guess there's a couple, but uh, differentiation is like one of the most powerful things. And I wish I had written a little bit more about this in the book, because I do talk about healthy boundaries and safe people and that kind of thing, which is extraordinarily important. But differentiation is basically just like managing your attachments to people. And so knowing that, you know, you can express your thoughts, your needs, your wishes, your desires, and you can also allow, you can tolerate your partner doing the same or your friend doing the same or a fellow churchgoer doing the same or a fellow, you know, school parent doing the same, whatever it is. And I think that's really important because so often we entangle our thoughts, needs, feelings, you know, our desires with another person's and we allow our attachments to be dependent on how they're feeling and what they're thinking and what they're doing. And I think that we have to establish, be self-aware enough to know, what do I want? What do I think? What do I need? What do I feel? And to know that is to engage with yourself in such a way that you don't depend on others for those things. And you don't want to stretch it so far where you have no attachments to others, because there's also a healthy level of togetherness that we all need to have. We actually do need a relationship. We need each other. But differentiation is so helpful because it sets a good boundary and it allows other people to have their own thoughts without you taking it personally. And so I think that's a really powerful tool that we have. <laughs> oh, that's really, you should write a whole book on that. That's good. If we don't have conflict at all mm-hmm. in our relationships, is that a red flag? Oh, that's a great question. So I think this points back to what we think conflict is, right? Because our idea of conflict, sometimes we think it, it has to be sort of explosive or completely combative and that's conflict. But the truth is, you know, you can, you have disagreements all day long, right? Whether you voice them or don't voice them, you disagree with your, you know, your kids or your roommate or your, you know, partner all day long and all week long, we are dealing with these different disagreements, a family member, a friend, someone that that's lifestyle looks a little different than yours. Like we are dealing with this kind of all the time. And so I think conflict is, is a way that that we can think about re-engaging with one another and establishing boundaries and being healthy and being safe and allowing each other to have, you know, conversations. Like that's really what conflict is. So I wouldn't say that someone with no conflict in their life is unhealthy because I don't know enough context. Like I think a lot of people would look at our marriage and be like, these guys never fight. And that is true. Like, because, but that's because we have healthy conflict. Like we are able to talk through really hard things and we are able to have conversations that, you know, maybe we know other people wouldn't want to have. And we'll just stop in the moment and say, oh my gosh, that was really frustrating. You know, let's just deal with that really quickly and move on. You know, like, so I think that if you have healthy communication, then it could appear to others that you're not in conflict ever, but you really are just having hard conversations all the time. <laughs> and that's a good thing. <laughs> Maybe your third book should be a marriage book. Yeah. That sounds <laughs> Maybe so. We would love that. That's amazing. <laughs> what does, what does your husband do? So he's also, he's a pastor. Yeah. Okay, that's what I thought. Yeah. And yeah. you, did you preach? This is totally an aside. Did you yeah. preach at church this weekend? I did a couple of weeks ago. Yes. Awesome. <laughs> Very cool. Yeah. I was looking yeah. at your, I was stalking your Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Love it. So let's speaking of church, um, <laughs> let's go. You, I'm ready. You do talk a lot in the book about the American church specifically. And Lauren and I were both born and raised in evangelical Christian spaces. We're yeah. still Christians. We also recognize though, that the church especially the American church is deeply flawed. Yeah. One of the things that you say in the book is that the American church has really lost control 
of the narrative. And when I think of what the narrative of the church should be, and and I think you would agree, I think it should be love overall, but how do you see the church having gotten away from love and how have they lost control of that narrative? And then how can they get it back? Not, I'm not even sure they need to control the narrative, but how can they get back to love? Yeah. Good question. So you guys ask great questions. (laughs) So I would say, you know, a couple of things, I need to give this a bit of a caveat because I grew up in a very tiny, um, small Baptist church that was full of people who were, you know, um, poor, they were gas station workers. You know, some of them were foster parents, um, which in and of itself doesn't make a person low in a low income bracket, but in that particular faith community, that's what it was. And, you know, and a lot of, you know, people in their eighties and nineties. So it was a very small church. There was not a message I ever heard about how we should vote, how we should think like, it just, it wasn't that way. It was a sweet, sweet experience. And I know the SBC is just going through some things and we won't even tap into that, but it wasn't like that for me growing up. You know, it was a precious, sweet place to grow up. So I actually didn't interface with evangelicalism until I was in, you know, my mid twenties, late thirties, I mean, early thirties. And then I really understood like, oh my gosh, people are growing up basically being told how to vote. And that if you're, if you vote Democrat, then you're, you know, worshiping Satan. I mean, and that extreme, I mean, I was, I was baffled you guys. I had no idea that churches could even do this, you know, cause I just, did, that wasn't my experience. And so I just didn't know that was a thing. And of course, as I've researched and learned more history about evangelicalism and even, you know, their thoughts and views on integration during the civil rights movements. And just like, there's so many, there's a long history of things that are difficult to look at. And I think that I, for the first time felt a bit embarrassed and ashamed of the public witness of the church. And I don't know if that's because I was living in Manhattan, especially because I was in Manhattan for the last two presidential elections, which were difficult for everybody, no matter what side of the fence that you were on. And I was in living, since I was living in Manhattan, where it is not very Christian and people do not have any sort of church culture ideals. I really saw how other people viewed the evangelical church. And I felt ashamed about that. And I felt embarrassed of that because I thought, wow, they, we are not known for our love and we are not known for looking like Jesus, you know, and, and not only that people weren't even looking to us. It was almost as if we were just completely irrelevant. You know, it was like a joke. It felt like a meme, you know, to other people. And that grieved me so deeply. And I know you could be listening to this and that may not be true about your context or where you come from. And I relate the experiences have been so beautiful. Like I've, I got sober in my church. I walked with Jesus in my church. I met my husband. I met my community. Like I know what it looks like for a faith community to be rich in love and to be compassionate and generous. Like, yes, yes. And amen. I've seen it. So I'm speaking more to that public witness that's in the news media all the scandals, all the toxicity, all the enmeshment of faith and politics in a way that is unhealthy and not good. And so for me, I wanted to speak to that. So yes, I do feel like we've lost control of that, that love. You know, I want people to look at us and see Jesus. And my hope in writing this book is to help the church have a better witness and to help us have personal freedom in the area of disagreement and conflict. So yeah, I don't know that we can get it back. I think that some things just have to run their course. And what's beautiful about this time is that the Lord is extending to us an opportunity for repentance. And that's an old school word for some people. 
but I love it. You know, repent, like it's time to change. It's time to change. It's time to grow. It's time for us to grow in loving our neighbor. It's time to, for us to grow in loving the Lord with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, with all our strength, because this is the thing when we behold him and behold who he is, when we worship him, we become like him and we cannot worship at the altar of politics. And we cannot worship at the altar of news media. And we cannot worship at the altar of conspiracy theories and expect our public witness to look like Jesus. Mm. That's not who he is. Mm. Yeah. Amen. So good. Mm -hmm. Sorry. I'm just processing everything that you're saying. And I'm like, yeah, it's just, it's so good. And one of the things that I love about what you do in the book, but who you, I mean, obviously we have just met through a zoom call right now, (laughs) but having listened to the podcast and follow you online, I can tell that you are a person who is living what you're saying. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And when you are saying repent, or when you are saying love and behold Jesus, so we can become more like him. That is something that you have deeply internalized and you are doing yourself. And I think in my mind, when I think of what it's going to take for the church to change, it's such at an individual level, all of us individually repenting and loving and changing the people around us through the love of Jesus. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree with you. That is what it's going to take. And I, and I think an additional part of that would be that I think church clergy leaders have, have to do some real work here. And I think, what would it look like? You know, I have a whole chapter called woe to the offender in the book, because we very often talk about, you know, forgiveness in faith communities. And I love that because forgiveness has set me free. And I have had to forgive people who will never say they are sorry and who probably aren't even sorry. Like I've had to do it without their participation. And it's hard, like forgiveness is hard work, but it's good, holy work. And at the same time, Jesus does say, woe to the offender you know, um, the, the person who causes my little ones to stumble. And I think it would be really wise of faith communities in this season to repent and to do so publicly and to change the way that their community operates and to change the things that they worship. And that becomes really important because that, that trickles down into the community that you're a part of. And so I think that that's the additional piece that's missing. And I've seen churches do it in this season, you know, where they're like, whoa, we didn't realize and we're making a change and it's really beautiful to see. So it is totally possible. And then there's others who are doubling down and saying, no, it's always been this way. We're going to stay this way. This is it. (laughs) And I'm sad that that witness of judgment and that witness of telling people where they're wrong all the time is, is what they call love. And I do believe that some people deeply believe that that's love you know, and it, that makes me sad, <laughs> yeah. but yeah, the, the clergy leadership has some work to do here too. So you've talked a little bit about how the, the church, the American church specifically can change, but let's take it back to the individual. Mm-hmm. You know, do you think people are truly capable of changing their views on politics and race and the culture wars in general? Mm-hmm. And if so, how? Yeah. I love this question. Cause I'm still old school. You know, like I, I believe people can change. I really do believe it. I know it. Cause I've seen it not just in myself, but you know, you sit in a recovery room with a bunch of people who like 
wow, the things we have done in this room, I mean, Jesus be a fence, you know, and you watch people change and you watch them grow and you watch them see, you know, make amends and get healthy and grieve their, their mistakes and their failures and make it right. You know, I've seen it over and over. And one of the most powerful things I experienced in the last couple of years, and especially in New York, which is very much, we view it as one of the most progressive cities in America. And that wasn't really my experience. <laughs> you know, I, I was surprised by the levels of growth that needed to happen in individuals when it came to things like race, for example. And I know sometimes you're talking about culture wars and right now there's this whole thing about CRT, which I'm just not, I'm not even gonna mess with it because it's, I think it's silly. It's like, I don't have the time in my life to be fighting about this stuff on Facebook and be worried about things that aren't even happening in most places. Like, I'm just not going to give my energy to that, but racial justice is really important to me. And it matters to me because, you know, people who are my family, you know, that's how I view it. It's like my brothers and sisters are in a struggle and therefore I'm in a struggle. And that's how I've always seen it. It's like, we, we have solidarity that way. And so, um, you know, as we've led in those spaces, my husband and I, what we've seen is that people really can change. Like I remember specifically a girl um, grew up in evangelicalism and she was part of our faith community. And she was doing her own work. You know, it's not like we were getting up every week talking about race and justice and all these things we did, but it wasn't every week. And, you know, it wasn't foundational enough that she could have received that just from us, but she was on a journey with God and she realized that she was racist and she just owned it. You know, she was like, I was raised this way. I didn't even know I was racist. I had no idea that the things I was thinking and saying were so racist. And she was like, I'm sorry. And she just started making amends with people and growing and learning more about the struggles that people were in. And, you know, she owns that now. It's like part of who she is. Like I used to be racist and now I'm not, and this is what it looks like. And, you know, that's just one story. I have so many but I think that that is really powerful to own something like that is, is really powerful. And, you know, we've seen men who treated women poorly in positions of power and leadership, make necessary changes, grow, say they're sorry, become a different person, lead differently. So I just think that it is so possible to change, not just from things like addiction or, you know, those habits in our home that are not helping anybody, <laughs> least of all us, you know, that we need to change. So yes, I believe it. I'm old school people can change. <laughs> I don't think that's old school. I think that that's a necessary <laughs> view that we have to have as people. We have to be hopeful. Yes, I agree. I wholeheartedly agree. Hope we have is to give the people thing. the chance to change. Come on. Yeah. We have yes. to, you know, like you write about it in the book a lot, but like you need to allow yourself to be surprised by people. Yeah. Just expect them to be exactly who you think they are. Give them yes. a chance to be who they're going to be and be curious yes. and find out why they feel the way they do or think the way they do. And yeah. that's the only way maybe they've never even asked themselves that question. Correct. That's beautiful. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Our judgments about people can hinder our connections to them. Mm -hmm. So we really do have to think through what are my judgments around others and this type of person, what do I believe they can or cannot do? And mm -hmm. who do I believe that they are or are not? Because it's not fair for us to assign things to other people. You know, that's not, it's not godly and it's not right. We need to be able to show up as ourselves and allow others to show up as their selves. So I'm glad that you said that. Yes. <laughs> all of that being said, yes, people can change and we all believe that, but you know, when is the time to look at a relationship and say, I love you, yeah. but at least for right now, reconciliation is just not possible. There are some fundamental things here that we cannot reconcile. And, and what does that look like? Can you talk us through that a little bit? 
Yes. So forgiveness and reconciliation are not the same thing. So I think it's one thing to be in relationship with someone who is causing hurt or harm and realize like, okay, I need to be part of a forgiveness process that's personal so that I can move on with my life. And so that this person's hurt and harm is no longer coloring the way I see the world or impacting the way I live it. And so that's really important, but reconciliation is a two-way street. So in order for us to be in relationship with others, there has got to be a level of mutuality that happens. And if there is not mutual respect, if there's not mutual honor, and if there's not mutual, um, you know, care, then there's no real way to move forward. So one person is doing all the work, you know, and changing and growing and constantly making room for the other person and the other person doesn't do it. You know, that's, that's really tough. And obviously this looks different on every level, right? Because it's much easier to end a toxic relationship with someone that you go to church with or another parent at your kid's school or someone that you go to school with, right? Like that becomes a little bit easier. They're not in your day-to-day life. You know, you see them from time to time. It's okay to have that conversation and end it because the relationship is toxic, hurtful, or harmful. And then at the same time, I think, you know, it gets difficult when it's your family, when it's a partner, when it's, you know, a very close friend that you've known forever. And so you really, you know, there's different ways to respond based on the levels of relationship, but I do think it's more, it's important for the people to be educated enough to know like reconciliation works both ways. It won't happen if the other person doesn't participate. And if they are unwilling to repent and say, sorry, and actually change their behavior, because what is a sorry without change behavior? What is that? It's, it's very, it's unhelpful and manipulative. So you actually have to see a person change. They have to go through their own recovery process and change. And I think that's really important, but having that conversation is never going to be easy. You know, I've had many (laughs) and I've avoided many, frankly, sometimes I've just like walked away from a relationship and just never talked to them again. That's a terrible way to handle it. In some cases you have to, you know, if the abuse is, is bad enough, if there's someone from your past or your history that you're like, this person continues to hurt and harm me. And I'm worried for myself, for my children, for whoever, like just walk away. You don't owe them an explanation. You don't owe them any kind of, you know, reasons why if they can't figure it out on their own, they will eventually. But I think that, you know, I wish in some of the past relationships that weren't that bad that I had just said, we've gotten to a place like we're at an impasse and we cannot move forward together. And I love you. And I'm so thankful for the connections that we've had but we can no longer journey forward because this relationship just isn't working. And it's okay to say that. And you have to sometimes. I want to end on a pretty practical note. Mm. I think that's something that you just do so well in the book Mm. is make it so practical. And you explain why love is the resistance not to be, you know, (laughs) Um, silly, but You also make it so practical at the end of every chapter, giving us those four things, the questions that we can ask. But the last question that that we have is, what do we do when that family member or that friend or that person that we think we know on the internet, but (laughs) we don't know, (laughs) makes a really (laughs) insensitive post or an offensive comment? What do we do? How should we react to that? Mm -hmm. Should we react to that? Right. (laughs) Well, you definitely have to pick your battles. Okay. So let's just know that we need to pick our battles. But one of the things I would say to people is that the longer you wait to deal with the conflict, the harder it gets to deal with it. So you have to really learn and grow in the discipline of just trying. Okay. So in the moment, deal with it. So let's say a family member says something at dinner. And it's, you know, very, very offensive to someone you love or to you personally. And I think that it's that moment that you say, Hey, wait a second, excuse me. We don't, we don't talk like that at our table. And here's why, 
you know, so I would really appreciate that if you have those comments and thoughts that you save them for a time when I'm not around. And I've done that plenty of times and just let them know it usually stops completely. You know, sometimes it'll result in, you know, a little bit of a fight, but I don't care. I'm like, I'm holding my ground here. Like, you know, you you can't take somebody else's um, irresponsible words personally as yours, you know, so you have to be able to say to them, this is not okay for me. And if they can't hear that, then that's their problem. You know, you can't control anybody's reactions to the things that you say. <laughs> you're, you're not in control of that. I have and had to have learn to that right? very much. Yes. Yes. And that's real. And can't you can't take that on myself. No, you that's can't. Yeah. That's right. That's right. That's right. And I think that we have to just let them, you know, if they have a, a real response back that's super negative, you can just respond again. Totally. I understand where you're coming from, but I'm not going to allow that kind of talk, at, you know, when I'm around. Thank you you know, and you just end it. It's like, I'm not going to do back and forth with you. Mm -hmm. And then I think online is where you really pick your battles. You know, that's where you really go, well, this is crazy, but it's also par for the course. So I'm not going to get involved. You know, someone who has a a long string of the same thing, like they're not interested in changing. They're not interested in a dialogue, but every now and then somebody might post something that I think to myself, huh, that feels a little out of character and also strange. And I'll just If they're close, I'll shoot them a text message or a direct message and just say, Hey, what did you mean by this post? It feels pretty hurtful, to be honest. Can we talk about it? Um, And then sometimes I'll, if they're, if I'm not that close, but I think it warrants a comment, I'll ask a question. Like I said to you guys, you know, Hey, this seems like not normal for you. Like, where did you, where'd you get this um, idea or where did you arrive at this conclusion? How did you get here? Where'd you find this article? Who's, who are the sources? of this article, like, where are you sharing this from? You know, like, I think I ask questions like that to kind of make people thoughtfully reflect on the things that they post. Cause we are responsible, you know, like, and especially if we are believers, we are responsible for our words and Jesus reads Facebook too. Okay. Like he is not, he doesn't check out. And suddenly he's like, I didn't see that. Like, yeah, yeah no, he, it's all there. It's all present. It is a form of communication. You know, so I think guys, we have to do better. We need a healthy dose to do better. <laughs> That's going to be the, the pull quote for Instagram yeah. for this episode is Jesus reads Facebook. <laughs> he does. He does. You guys, people need to know. <laughs> I love it. Oh, so awesome. This is so great. Yeah. I just, I'm so excited to like actually use the tools that I gleaned from the book. I just think the idea of normalizing conflict is so important. We shy away from it. We're scared of it. We label it as bad. And we're like, oh, don't want anything to do with that. But you're right. It's the way to redemption. It's the way to reconciliation and just connection with other people. And I think, what is this life without, you know, human, especially with those that don't agree with us, I think. Yes. Mm -hmm. So good. Yeah. Yeah. Is there anything else that you, we didn't talk about that you just want to share about the book and obviously where people can find you? Yes. Okay. So I think we covered so much ground because you guys asked some of the most thoughtful questions I've ever received. So I want you to know that. Um, And then I think if you would like to read this book and be a part of it, I would love for you to have it and you can get it anywhere books are sold. And we're creating a video course to go along with it as well. So there'll be like videos that you could use for a book club or a Bible study um, or even individual, you know, journey through with the videos. And I think that that would be really wonderful for people who are interested in going a little deeper or you really enjoy this book and this material and would like to take a group of people through it. Like this is a great thing. And I'm on the internet, mostly on Instagram. I love it over there. It's, it's a happier place. So um, you can find me on Instagram. I'd love to hear from you guys and connect with you. And it's been such a joy to be with you ladies. You're wonderful. (laughs) Thank you. We loved this. This was so fun. I feel like 
when we talked to Tiffany and now talking to you, yeah. it was just like talking to a friend that yeah. we've never met before. Um, <laughs> when we first, when we were listening to your podcast, when we first found you guys, we were like, oh my gosh, we just want to hang out with them so bad. Totally. We need to make that happen. <laughs> oh, thank you so much, Ashley. We will talk to you soon. We'll see you on the gram. Yeah. I'm looking forward to it. Bye ladies. I was so inspired by that conversation. I know sometimes it feels like conflict is bad. Like this is something <laughs> that I have struggled with, like putting things in categories of good and bad. I am an Enneagram one, if anyone doesn't remember. <laughs> right and wrong. Right and wrong. Good and bad, black and white. And you know, in some senses, that's really great for me. I'm very justice oriented, but in other ways, it skews my feelings towards certain things that aren't aren't right or wrong, aren't black and white, they're nuanced. And conflict is actually good. And conflict is not actually bad. Just the very nature of the word sounds like something we don't want in our lives. But truth be told, you can't have true connection or relationship without conflict. It's the only way we can stay true to ourselves, speak up when we know in our gut we need to, and grow deeper love and understanding for others who think differently than we do. And I'm really working on shifting my perspective of conflict so I can more easily and freely like move through the healthy disagreement with others. This book and this interview has helped me so much in practically moving forward in that. Yes, she gives such practical tips and questions to think through, and mantras to repeat to ourselves yes. at the end of every chapter. There is, I believe, going to be a discussion guide for book so clubs this that's would coming be out. Such a great book club book to discuss. Maybe with people that I don't know very well. Yes, yes, exactly. Maybe with people you can disagree with. I love that. <laughs> Just putting it into practice already. Look at us. <laughs> Well, you guys, we hope that you found this interview to be as insightful and helpful and just good for the soul as it was for us. We are so, so grateful for you because we know that you also feel that life is too short to stay silent. Thank you for raging with us.